the genius of Genesis. This is part six. Good morning. My name is Lindsay Tolan, and uh, and I go to Kitsum, and I'm going to be reading Genesis 1:26. Then God said, "Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and and all the wild animals." and over the creatures that move along the ground. When we pray at this time every Sunday, there are a lot of things we pray for. Um, not only medical needs, but I want to let you know about uh, a couple people we're praying for. Tom Harrison, as he continues to work his way through uh, 12 rounds of chemotherapy. He's made it through two of them at this point. Um, for... Um, Teresa Ware, who came home this week after her surgery on her back, for Bob Kinnon, who spent some time in the hospital this week. Uh, some of you remember Gary and April Drinkwater. They moved down to Florida about three years ago, and I've been in touch with Gary. His wife, April, has uh, been in the hospital for the fourth time in the last four weeks. She's dropped 50 pounds because of an infection that they can't figure out. And Gary called me on Friday saying, I really need help. They watch us every Sunday from Florida, and um, so we're going to pray for April this morning. And you may see Bob and Terry Wynn around here today. They're up for a family funeral as well, um, up from North Carolina. Father, thank you for the way that you work through all of us. We pray about these matters that Todd has just shared with us this morning, and that by putting our efforts together, you'd allow us to address some of the financial shortfall we've been feeling. We recognize that we are not exempt from all the ups and downs that are going on across our nation right now and that are impacting so many people, and um, right now it's impacting us as a church too. So we pray that as we pull together, as we consider where you would lead each of us, that you would work within that problem and solve it. Help us also as we uh, act responsibly and we tighten our belts and we figure out what we can go without for the rest of this year. And thank you for wise minds and skills of people on our finance team who've been wrestling with this and counseling with us about uh, how to proceed. And we ask that you'll continue to bless their efforts. We pray over the mission of our church that you would help us find ways to build relationships with and to be able to winsomely present the reasons for the hope that we have, the hope that is in Jesus to friends of ours who either have not fully committed their lives to him or who've never even considered the claims of Christianity. So there are a number of friends that we think of and pray for, and as each person fills in the, their, their thoughts with the names that they are considering, I ask that you would continue to watch over uh, all of those who are near and dear to us. I think of a friend, Bill, of my, a friend of mine who... Um, is, is struggling with end-of-life issues, and I ask that you would bring him to a fullness of faith during this time. Lord, we pray for April in particular, and we ask that you would give her strength. Allow our prayers to be an encouragement to her, and if there's anything that is stopping your power from breaking through in her life, we pray that you'd use our prayers to remove that obstacle. Work through the medical team, work through miraculous means and prayer, whatever you choose, Lord, we ask that you would bring health and healing into her life. We also continue to lift up Tom and Bob and Teresa, and we ask that you'd walk with the winds at this time, too, as uh, they 
that deal with the death of Bob's sister. Lord, we pray for the mission of our church, that uh, you would cause us to have an impact here in this part of the South Shore. In all other like-minded churches, we realize this is not our job alone, but that you would allow us to be faithful in how we teach your word, how we live it out, how we love each other, and then spread that love to all those that we know across the South Shore. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a time and in a culture that is tremendously concerned with, focused upon, and obsessed with the concept of one's image, how we present ourselves and how we are perceived by the world. Actors, artists, and entertainers are one example of this. So our our news portals and our TV entertainment update shows regularly include hyped-up glamour shots of famous people posing for the camera, wearing eye-catching outfits, and whatever it takes to stay in the public eye or to maintain one's image. You familiar with this concept of the how we how we project our image, how we protect our image, how we proclaim our image? Laura Morgan Roberts, a Harvard Business School professor, wrote one of the most popular HBS articles of all time that focused on creating a professional business image. Written in 2005, just before the explosion of social networking, she urged people to, quote, create your own identity. I doubt she invented that phrase, but it became much more popular in our current lingo from that point on. The implication was that if you don't, And if you don't manage it well, other people will do this for you. They will create an image for you. She was on to something. Capturing the importance of maintaining one's image, a campaign by Canon Cameras came up with this slogan. Image is everything. Now, that makes sense in in the camera business. Cameras have the ability to capture an image and freeze it in time. So make sure that you have the best equipment for that moment. That's the idea behind that. The marketing world is devoted to helping individuals and corporations craft an image that captures the essence of who they are, or at least what they want us to think they are. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. I learned a long time ago that we all market. Churches market their images too. Every time we create a logo, or we put a sign at the end of the road, or we use a slogan within our church services, or an image on a website, we are marketing. We all market. We either do that well, or we do not do that well. We either do that ethically, or we do that unethically. Consider with me for a moment one downside of this concept of imaging. The images that we see can be easily manipulated. This is so commonly done that we have a term for it that comes from one of the most widely used tools for digital manipulation. We call this photo photoshopping. Some of you know exactly where I'm going with this. We can photoshop people into a photo or out of a photo. We can make a person's image or shape change, make one's face look absolutely perfect. We can make products look better than they actually do influencing the choices about what you buy and why you buy. All of this can also impact the way that a person sees oneself. In this image is is everything culture, do we have an accurate image of who we really are? 
or of why we are really here. Now, I raise all this because this morning we come to the Bible's first introduction to the concept of imaging that is found back in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Our topic today is Made in His Image. This is part six of our Genius of Genesis series. Each week in this series, we've been mining out bedrock principles that are revealed in the opening chapter of the Bible, the opening chapter of Genesis, which, if properly understood, provide us with a foundation for understanding God, our world, and our place in it. The question this morning is, what does it mean to be made in God's image? And once we've wrestled that with that for a little bit, why does this matter or how does this impact the way that we live our lives? So here, here's the big idea that I want to share with you this morning. Image bearers find purpose in reflecting, revealing, representing, and relating to God. Let me walk you through that. We're going to talk about being made in His image and embracing some God-given roles that rise out of this opening chapter of Genesis. Here's the first discovery for me. In His image, we reflect God. We reflect God. That's the word that you're missing if you're filling in blanks on that page. The answers are all in the back, by the way. Uh, Verse 26 at the front, front end of that says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. The Hebrew word that is used here for the word image is used to depict a statue or model portraying an image to the outside world. So an image is a reflection of the real thing. It is not the real thing itself. Think of the statue of Abraham Lincoln that we find in Hingham on Lincoln Street. It's it's there because in 1639, Samuel Lincoln, a distant four times great-grandfather of Abraham Lincoln, bought land there, and there are a number of homes that have the historic Lincoln label on them. Then in 1939, some 300 years later, residents of Hingham paid for the statue that we see to be placed on an open little field near that home. The image of Lincoln is so powerfully done that you get the sense that old Abe is really there. Now, while such a statue, of course, is not the real thing, it reflects attributes and tendencies of the real thing. Here's the point that I'm driving at. Human beings reflect God more than anything else in all of creation. And that's part of the way that we were designed. So you might be asking, okay, in what ways do we image or reflect God? Let me walk you through three categories. The first is that we reflect several of God's characteristics. We are creative beings. The first thing we discover about God in Genesis 1 was, in the beginning, God created. And every single one of us has some creative tendency. We express it in music or in art or in building buildings or in repairing things. In some way, you have a creative gift. All of our gifts are different from each other, but when we are creative, we, in some way, mirror God. We all have personhood defined by psychology as an intellect, will, and emotions. If you were to go through a study, you can find all three of those, an intellect, a personal will, an individual will, and and emotions for God the Father, for the Holy Spirit, and for Jesus. And we have these same tendencies. We have sensation. We see, hear, speak, smell, taste, taste, touch. We each have a unique personality. Some of you have more unique personalities than the rest of us, and that's a wonderful thing. Uh, We have minds that are capable of reason. We have a moral conscience capable of knowing right and wrong. We can communicate, and so we speak 
and we write. And if, if we can't speak, we sign. We are relational beings as well. Notice in the first chapter of Genesis, we never see God in isolation. By the time we're three verses into the Bible, we've discovered God the Creator, the Holy Spirit who's hovering over the waters, and then in verse 3, it takes a little bit of insight from John's Gospel, but God says, let there be light, and there was light, and the creative process starts to happen. John's Gospel tells us that Jesus was there in the beginning, and that He was with God, and that He was God, and that He was the light of the world, and that everything that we have was created for Him and by Him. So here we are, three verses into the Bible, and we've already discovered this one God who exists in three persons, Father, Spirit, and Son. And there's this divine harmony and relationship. By the time we get to the end of the first chapter, God is also inserting people into this creative process. And we discover that God is a relational being and we are like Him. We are relational beings. And the rest of the Bible tells the story of what's gone wrong in that relationship. That's the first category. The second category of how we are like God is that every human being shares a measure of dignity, whether they believe in God or not. Psalm 8 verse 5 says, You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. Do you realize that's the way that God sees you, sees every person in this room, sees every person in our world? We have a very high place and He's crowned people with glory and honor. There is a dignity about life. And the third category is that we are capable of fellowship with God. Because we share so many of God's characteristics, we are capable of relating to God. That does not mean that every human being desires fellowship with God or enjoys that, but we are uniquely designed among all of creation for fellowship with God. God wants to know every single one of us. He wants to know every single person in this world, and He wants us to know Him as well. That gives us such great confidence in the way that we live, about, live out our faith, in the way we talk about our faith, in the way that we look at our fellow human beings. There is not a single person that you or I have ever met, no matter where they are, that God does not want a relationship with. I believe that to the core of my being, and it flows out of what we're reading here in Genesis 1. So here's the first observation. In His image, we reflect God. Here's the second discovery. In His likeness, we reveal God. Let's read that whole verse. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. The second key word here, that goes alongside of image is likeness. In the original language, this word is similar to image, but not the same, so they modify each other. One Bible scholar renders this as, quote, in the likeness of his image. I actually find that very helpful. They, they work together to, to give us a broader concept. A likeness is something that has similarities, but is clearly not the real thing. Think of a painter who paints your portrait that is based on a photo of you. You hand them a snapshot, and they're going to do a a painting. The artist deliberately aims for this not to be an exact copy of the photo, but an artist's impression of the person who's in the photo. We call this a likeness. This helps establish 
our understanding of our relation to God. We are created in his image, sharing several characteristics that reflect God, but human beings are never the real thing. Instead, we are made in the likeness of God. Created in God's likeness, we reveal God, even though this is not an exact likeness or an exact copy of who God is. There is something of the glory of God, the characteristics of God, the relational qualities of God that are revealed to the world in every human being, whether they believe in God or know God or not. Now, notice the context of these two words, image and likeness. It comes in the flow of all this other created stuff and created beings that inhabit this earth. So human beings are created in God's image, in his likeness, but not the fish of the sea. Human beings are created in his image, in his likeness, but not the birds in the sky, not the livestock or the wild animals, not all the creatures who crawl along the ground. Image bearers find purpose in reflecting, revealing, representing, and relating to God. Here's the third discovery. In his image and likeness, we represent God. I'll go back to that same verse. And God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. How do we represent God? God is king over all creation. It is his. He made it all. The Old Testament says that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the wealth in every mine. At some level, it's all his. People may take temporary possession of it. What you and I have is temporary. I've got news for you. Even if you put it in the coffin, it's not going with you at the end. That's true for me too. God looks at each wave of his creative work and he pronounces it as good. And then on the very last part of the sixth day, He creates the first human being and announces to the world, this is very good. He steps outside of that pattern. There's a slight but significant change in the poetic formatting of the writing of chapter 1 that enters into the picture here. Five times we've seen that God stepped back and saw that his work was good. And now with this sixth creative act of creating human beings, God says this is very good. He also changes the verb action. I don't know if you've noticed, but... The verb action is kind of passive before. He says, let there be light, and there was light. And, and let the vault between the waters separate, and this happens. Let there be great lights that govern the day and the night. Let the land produce vegetation. Now the Lord changes up the command structure. He says, let us make man in our image. This conveys the idea of a suggestion and complete agreement within the Trinity. God posits the idea of creating creating human beings, and the Son and the Holy Spirit both agree. So in our Trinitarian formula, God is one, yet within the oneness of God the Creator, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son, we find there is full harmony over this decision that is singled out and presented in a slightly different way than all the rest of the created order that's out there. There's something about putting people on the face of this earth that every part of the Trinity is in agreement with. It has to do with the intention and purpose behind 
placing human beings on this earth. So not only is God the creator for you, I have news for you, the Holy Spirit is for you, and Jesus, the Son of God, is for you. That's an amazing reality. We have this statement that flows out of Genesis 1 that are letting us know in the command structure of how God put human beings on the earth that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all absolutely for you. They endorse your being here. It's part of their idea. And human beings are commissioned to rule over the creatures of the world. Theologians refer to this role of the first humans as being vice-regents who represent God. We don't rule over the fish, the birds, and the animals as tyrants who have some sense of entitlement, like they all belong to us. Rather, we are to act as representatives of the king, as stewards over his creation. As stewards, we are those who must give account, and we make use of, and we care for his creation. These dual roles of using and caring for go hand in hand. We don't worship any aspect of creation, yet we are not supposed to abuse it either. We represent God and use His creation and care for His creation as God would, as His chosen representatives. And then there's a fourth discovery that I found in in diving deep into these two verses It comes in verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Verse 27 is vitally important. We're going to look at it today. We're going to look at it again next week because we're going to deal with a different theme. As uh, first we see that it draws in all human beings, male and female. We're going to talk about the gender aspects of verse 27 next week. In fact, I'll give you a little heads up. Next Sunday will probably be the week where you don't want your younger children with you in the service. Put them in kids' zone, please. A little bit of a PG-13 service because we're going to talk about things that get controversial and there are times we have to do that as a church. We're going to talk about gender and what Genesis has in mind about gender. You may want your older children to be with you here if you're going to carry that conversation on afterward. I guarantee it will at least be thought-provoking. But the most, most obvious intention is to, to declare that we all share in the image of God. Genesis 1.27 is written in poetic form, much like we would find in the Psalms or in the Proverbs. There are three lines of poetry that are meant to build on each other and reinforce each other. So line one says, so God created mankind in his own image. Line two adds to that and says, in the image of God, he created them. Not, Not any new information, but reinforcing that both of them, male and female. And then just in case somebody misses the point, line three comes after that and says, male and female, he created them. The point is that men and women equally are created in God's image. Together, we reflect God, reveal God, represent God, and relate to God. There's no room here for men overpowering or abusing women. There's no hint here of men being superior to women or Sorry, ladies, but women being superior to men. I know all the jokes about all that. There's no hint here of any of that. But together, we relate to God. 
We were all created with the capacity to have fellowship with God and with the hope of being in relationship with each other and with God. Now, let me present some positive implications that rise out of these four discoveries. Here's the first one. If we take this seriously, and if we embrace this understanding of being created in the image of God, there are some natural repercussions about our decision-making that flow out of this, I believe. So here's the first one. We honor and defend all human life. Why? Because every human being bears the image of God. Whether you like them or not, whether you care about them at this moment or not, every human being we will ever meet bears the image of God. This is why murder was forbidden in the early chapters of Genesis. Cain taking his brother's life was seen as an attack on God because the image of God in man existed in his brother Abel. This is why murder was included in the Ten Commandments as a prohibition. The willful taking of life is a rejection or diminishing of the image of God. This conviction is what led the earliest Christians to adopt and defend abandoned children. In the Roman Empire, boys were always valued more than newborn girls. Rodney Stark, a historical sociologist in his book, The Rise of Christianity, describes how in those early centuries of the Christian movement, newborn girls were often left at the city dump site to die. That's how Roman culture devalued young women. Yet this tiny minority group just becoming known as Christians, couldn't live with that because they believed to the core of their being that the image of God exists in each and every human. And so they would go and claim these little girls, rescue them, and raise them as their own. Why? Because they valued the image of God in every child. And eventually, many of the citizens of the Roman Empire looked at the way the Christians lived and the way they valued life and said, This is more attractive than our Roman system. And the Roman Empire began to fall because Christians lived out their belief about the image of God in mankind. This is also why the vast majority of biblical Christians through the centuries have defended the unborn. It's about representing the image of God in every human being. Now, this may come to a shock to some people who've not fully understood this as a bedrock principle of Genesis 1, and I understand that. And I understand that within our congregation, there are people who are all over the map on this issue. Please know, if you disagree with me, you are loved and valued here, and we want to continue to dialogue with you about all of this. But this one principle has changed many minds over time in this regard. This also applies to the way that we look at special needs people as well. That rather than seeing them as throwaway people or deficient, we see them as people to be cherished and valued who can teach us much about life. For a Christian to be under the authority of God, we need to square our beliefs and our actions with the bedrock principle of the image of God in mankind. That's the first positive implication. We We honor and we defend the unborn. Here's a second. We honor and defend other ethnicities. Notice that at each step of creation, there was separation and this phrase according to their kinds. But when we get to the human project where human beings are introduced, there's no discussion of being separated according to their kinds. 
Yet there is in every other part of the created order. This means that in God's eyes, there is one race, the human race. Now, the Bible traces the development of several tribes of people, and they are honored. These tribes often have local distinctions, and there are other cultures and ethnicities that, again, are respected and honored throughout the Bible and throughout time. This means that looking down on any other (coughs) ethnicity insults the God who created us all. This means that failing to love those whose skin may look different or whose ethnic background differs from yours or whose natural native tongue is different from yours or mine is an affront to the God who put his image in all. This means that using race to divide rather than to honor works against God's plan to unite us as one. One of the best chapters in North River's history was our partnership with People's Baptist Church. For the better part of 11 years, we partnered with one of the oldest historically black churches in Boston. We had a black-white urban-suburban partnership as together we worked to to bless uh, Boston public schools. And we adopted three schools during that time. We came alongside the principals and we tried to fill in gaps where the educational process was was leaving uh, certain things out or leaving kids behind. And it was one of the most joyous experiences of my life. I remember how we got into that. Uh, Dr. Wesley Roberts, the pastor, longtime pastor at People's Baptist, has been there for 43 years as the pastor. So I'm just a beginner after 33, almost 34 years compared to him. Dr. Roberts and I had built a friendship. And uh, at one point, we were talking about the the purpose-driven life and the the purpose-driven community stuff that we had done. And he wanted to pick my brain about it. And he said, you know, we, we boil it down to realizing that our history goes back a couple hundred years to before black children were welcomed into the Boston public school systems. So we had more or less a private school that was run by the first black church in Boston. And so we want to go back, and at our 200th anniversary, we want to honor that, but we're stuck. Do we help a a school that's really on the downside of things and gets shortchanged, or do we help a rising star among the churches that are, our schools that are ministering to, uh, to black children? And I don't know why. I think it was the Holy Spirit. It might have been my stupidity, though. I blurted out, well, what if we partnered with you? And he said, oh, if we did that, we could adopt both schools. A week later, I go to another meeting that Dr. Roberts and I were involved in, And he announces to the whole group that we're going to partner together. I thought we were brainstorming. And I had to stand before our congregation the next Sunday before both services and tell that story and say, I've got to know if I'm out here on the diving board by myself or if you guys are in this with me. And the church dived in. We had this amazing partnership where we learned so much about working with another church that had the same belief system, but a different makeup of people. And we found that in heart and in mission, we were one, even though our cultural backgrounds were different. It was one of the best experiences we have ever had as a church. And we discovered that we are better together when we recognize that we all share the image of God. Here's a third implication, positively. We honor and defend and include women I find it fascinating that Genesis specifies how men and women are equally created in the image of God. That's the point of the poetry in verse 27. If we were to develop a theology of how the Bible views women, we would start by building on the bedrock notion that women are created in the image of God. 
Jesus took this a whole lot further by the way that he included and valued women. Paul envisioned a church where we break down the walls between ethnic groups, the walls between social classes like slave and free, and the walls between men and women. I am so, so grateful for the women who teach and lead in a variety of roles here at North River. I have worked in churches where it was an all-boys club, and I've worked in church where leadership is shared among men and women. And I've got to tell you, I would never, ever go back. We are richer because of the shared gifts and talents when we view each other this way. And then one last. When we address the social challenges of our day, we start by affirming the image of God in everyone. We accept people where they are. We acknowledge that we are all sinners and that we are all broken in some way, morally, sexually, relationally, We don't affirm anyone, for we all need to be transformed in the image of Jesus. And we're going to pick up more on that next week. God's goal is never to leave us the way that we are, but to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. So here's the point. Image bearers find purpose in reflecting, revealing, representing, and relating to God. All this in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. I know this about you. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were all in agreement when God decided to put us in this planet. And there is nobody who is for you more than our God. Let's pray. Oh God, give us minds and hearts to fully analyze and embrace the nuggets of truth that rise out of Scripture and that embody Scripture. Allow it to inform the way that we look at ourselves, the way that we look at each other, the way that we see everyone else around us, and the way that we operate as your representatives in this world. Help us to do it well. Help us to do it generously. Help us to do it wisely. Help us to do it from large hearts. In Jesus' name, and with his help, and by his grace.